Yosemite National Park. Tommy Caldwell and Kevin Jorgensen made it to the top of El Capitan at 3:30 p.m. local time. They have become the first to climb El Capitan's so-called Dawn Wall without bolts or climbing tools. You're listening to the news on RTHK. For the last two to five years, Department of Financial Services is known to be very tough. And traders trading all sorts of things. Volatility in the foreign exchange market. Money for nothing. Good morning, and welcome back to Money for Nothing with me, Renita Malhotra Hora. U.S. stocks fall on concerns of global growth, copper prices slump, and so do U.S. retail sales. And J.P. Morgan shares decline 3.5% as legal costs are twice as high as analysts' expectations. Today we talk about Chief Executive C.Y. Lung's 2015 policy address. Our guests on the segment include Christopher Hammerback of the British Chamber of Commerce and Bill Stacey of the Lion Rock Institute. And Puru Saxena of Puru Saxena Wealth Management Management gives us his view on the markets. Peter Lewis of Peter Lewis Consulting joins us as co-host. Good morning, Peter. Good morning, Vanessa. So, Peter, there is one topic that rings out on every page of your prep notes today. Volatility, volatility, volatility. Yep, and volatility is now spreading across all asset classes. Um, equities, which had sort of been the last holdout, have now seen a big spike in volatility as well. It's a sign of global risk aversion. When volatility jumps in the way that it does, it means people are getting more concerned about the risk of markets and taking bets off the table. As indeed they should be, perhaps. Uh, Wall Street stocks fell overnight on a bruising day for global markets following disappointing U.S. retail sales and a weak global economic forecast from the World Bank. The Dow Jones dropped 187 points, over 1% to 17,426. The S&P 500 and the Nasdaq both ended about half a percent lower at 2,011 and 4,639 respectively. BBC's Michelle Fleury reports. There certainly was a bit of a grim day for the fourth day in a row for U.S. markets. Part of the reason was uh, some disappointing economic data on retail sales. The reason this sort of spooked investors was that they thought with the oil price falling, that meant that consumers had more money in their pockets and they might start spending this. The fact that retail sales were down means that perhaps consumers aren't spending it. Perhaps the economy is not as bright here in the U.S. as people had previously thought. The other reason, of course, has to do with the big banks and the start of the earnings season here in America. Now, the U.S. Beige Book report said that there was modest growth from mid-November to late December, yet retail sales were weak. Here's what uh, Guy Labar, who is the chief uh, fixed income strategist at Jenny Montgomery Scott, says. I don't have a count in front of me of all the times the Fed has described headline growth in the Beige Book as either modest or moderate, but that's the only phrase I can remember them using throughout the last couple of years of this economic cycle. So at least by the qualitative measures the Fed uses in the Beige Book, it seems that economic growth is chugging along relatively stably. It seems like a really big contrast with what we saw in this morning's retail sales numbers. Gasoline sales, worst performance since 2008, we all knew that. We just expected the wallet capacity that was opened up by these lower gas prices mm-hmm. to go into gifts for the holiday season. The data suggests they didn't. 
But Jonathan Golub, chief U.S. market strategist at RBC Capital, says that it's way too early to pin the blame on weak consumer activity based on the retail report. When we saw this really weak number this morning, the first thing I said was, what's happened the last few months? And the last few months, what you're seeing is that incremental dollar that people saved on gasoline, that they spent a, you know, some portion of that, and retail sales were reasonably healthy. This was a disappointment. But remember, it's December, and funky things happen in December around holiday season. So it's one data point. If this is a new trend that people are seeing deflation, you know, lower prices, uh, that, you know, and that causes them to perhaps spend less dollars, buy the same goods, but spend a little less, that's not a healthy, uh, that's not a healthy sign. But right now it's too, way too early to, to say that, um, that, that this trend has changed. So what about banks? JP Morgan was down, so was Wells Fargo. Why are banks having a tough time raising revenue this year? The first thing is, is that the banks, when you look at numbers, and, and I have JP Morgan as a, as a slight beat, but, you have legal expenses in there and you need to strip that out. There's some non-continuing operations. So when we look at a Fair. clean number, we have JP Morgan actually surprising by about four or five percent with some, you know, modest, not huge growth. And the same with Wells Fargo. They were, they were in line, but modest growth. Here's what you have is net interest margins on low interest rates are not healthy for the, for the banks. Trading activity is weak, but JP Morgan already told you, um, pre-announced that trading right. was going to be. Right, said it was going to be down double. Uh, correct. And we know that, um, the refi activity on mortgages, and we had a good number come out just now, but um, that's also been weak. So there's a, a bunch of things. What's going pretty well? Commercial lending has actually uh, huh. been, been decently strong. So I think that the banks are kind of uh, not terribly exciting. They're kind of growing in line with the economy, but, but not a negative. So back to oil. Jeff Curry is the head of commodities research at Goldman Sachs, and it was his research report put out a few days ago that sent oil plunging 5%. So the question is then, how will OPEC and non-OPEC nations adapt to what he calls the new oil order? Going back to the piece we put out in October, really the, the key conclusion there was that OPEC has lost market power. And one of the key reasons for that is that the supply curve for shale is incredibly flat. It's like producing paper clips. And you can see that by the fact that if OPEC took oil off the market today, made prices go up, this capital would move mm-hmm. right back in the market, redeploy these assets, and production right. would go up. So uh, uh, what about the price of oil then in that case? Dr. Curry said that it would go down to $39 per barrel by the 4th of July. But is it possible that oil could overshoot his number to the downside? Absolutely. And where we calculated that number, it was the level at which the bottom quartile companies in the United States go into default, the high yield guys. So clearly, you can always undershoot as the process begins to go through the adjustment. So oil has gained a little bit of ground in the last day. Brent crude uh, oil is currently at $48.69. Peter, you know, commodities are being hit worldwide. Copper has plunged. Could you explain to our listeners why copper is plunging? Is it because of low growth all over the world? Well, there's two reasons. Copper is very, very dependent upon demand um, in the in the world. And what we're seeing is GDP growth, global GDP growth is slowing, um, particularly in emerging markets. And that's partly because of the plunge in commodity prices. There are a number of emerging market economies which are very, very dependent um, upon commodities. So take a country such as Chile, for example, 20% of its GDP depends upon copper. So these countries are finding their currencies start to fall very rapidly. 
slowly, um, capital outflows and GDP growth slow um, sort of markedly. So that's having an impact also on energy companies who are starting to cut back now on their um, investments, their capital expenditure. So it becomes a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy as, as growth slows companies slow down on their plans and that further exasperates the, uh, the, the problem. All right, let's bring in Puru Saxena of Puru Saxena Wealth Management. Good morning, Puru. Good morning. Uh, happy New Year and welcome back to Money for Nothing. Same to you, my pleasure. Thanks. Uh, Puru, do you agree? What is your view on commodities? Well, commodities are in a bear market. We first turned negative on commodities in 2012. That's when the precious metals had peaked the year before. In April 2011, the CCI had topped out after a 10-year secular bull market. For almost four years now, we have been in a secular bear market, so it's hardly surprising that prices are going down. I think they're going to go down further. I think copper is especially vulnerable. And are we going to see a big hit in copper over the following months? So as these prices fall, how do companies in the energy sector respond to that? We've already started to see this week um, sort of, you know, companies like Shell and Premier Oil cut back on their sort of plans. Is this going to have a big effect on markets as, as we start to see, you know, companies announce more of that type of thing? Well, I think that the energy industry is going to have a serious problem, especially the upstream businesses and also the oil services companies. So the drillers, the equipment manufacturers, the, the picks and shovel manufacturers, they're going to have a serious problem because the oil majors are not going to spend as much on projects because the prices are too low. And the Canadian oil science industry is going to be badly hit as well. So what's your take on the, on the U.S.? There's been a lot of debate about whether or not the fall in the oil price is good for the U.S. consumer and hence good for the U.S. economy. Where, where do you stand on that? Well, I believe that the uh, plunging price of oil is actually very good for consumers all over the world, uh, not only in the U.S., but also most of the oil-importing nations, the big importers like India, like Japan, China, they're going to benefit immensely because, you know, their balance of trade is going to get better. People are going to have more money to spend as the price of oil goes down. I'm not so sure about Hong Kong because the price of oil doesn't go down. It only goes up in this city. But in the U.S., for example, it's gone from $4 a gallon to 2 So that's going to have an impact over time. So I think the price of oil falling is very good news for global growth, not so good news for the oil producers and exporters. So how do we balance this out then? As you say, it's good for consumers, but not so good for the producers. Well, if you're talking about investments, then I would focus on companies uh, which benefit from rising consumer consumption. So, you know, consumer discretionary areas, airlines, transportation, uh, autos, uh, travel, restaurants, retail, these are the areas where we have focused our managed portfolios. Our equity portfolio is heavily focused in these areas, predominantly in the U.S., because we believe that the U.S. dollar is going to rally. The U.S. dollar is in a secular bull market. So I think the dollar will rally. American assets, in my view, are going to benefit over the next two, three years. So this is the, the, the fall in commodities is also quite deflationary. So we've got central banks around the world struggling to fight um, deflation. What, what's their response going to be to, to sort of further falls like this? Well, last year in January, February, we uh, anticipated that the euro will fall significantly and uh, that turned out to be the correct uh, assessment. We believe that the European Central Bank is going to unleash uh, a big QE package and I think uh, the Fed is not going to raise interest rates as quickly as most people anticipate. I don't think they're going to reintroduce QE, but I think interest rates are going to stay at zero or where they are for a, a 
pretty much longer than most people anticipate, and that's bullish for stocks. So, Puru, it sounds like uh, you know you're being bullish uh, on stocks. You're not concerned about all of this volatility. You're saying just join the roller coaster, right? Well, it's never a one-way bet, is it? I mean, you wish it was a one-way bet, but you have volatility. Volatility has always been a part of the markets for a long time, <clears throat> and a five or seven percent pullback is is not a, a, a huge bear market. I still think that the trend in the U.S. and in Europe and in Japan remains up. In the emerging world, uh, we've been bullish about India for about 18 months. About four months ago, we turned positive on the Shanghai Composite Index. I think the Shanghai Composite Index is going to have a big rally over the following months. So these are some of the areas where we've invested our fund portfolios. Uh, what do you think, Peter? Do you think in, uh, India is going to continue to go the way everybody is expecting it to go? I, I think India is in a sweet spot. Um, that is one country that absolutely does benefit from um, sort of lower um, energy prices, and it's able to cut the fuel subsidies, something that it's been trying to do for, for many years. So that helps its uh, fiscal position. It's also demographically in a very, very good spot. Most um, economies in the world are finding that you know more and more old people are getting older and younger people are, are dropping out of the workforce. So the demographics for most countries are bad, whereas for India, it's very, very good. There's a huge population of young people joining the workforce, and that's going to help uh, GDP growth there. So, Puru, um, you know, looking at India from the outside, as we all are, uh, many of us, most of us, I would say, are, are bullish. But there have begun to be some rumblings from within the country already about uh, Modi having been in power for as long as he has or as short as he has thus far. Is he actually delivering? Is his government actually going to deliver everything that they have promised to? What are your thoughts on that? Well, there are two uh, scenarios to this. One is the real economy. Whether or not he delivers or not is a different uh, question. I think he may disappoint. But the thing from an investment point of view, you've got to look at the price action. And the price action has been fantastic. The Sensex was one of the star performers last year. And there is no signs at the moment to suggest that the uptrend has ended. So we are... Uh, remain optimistic about the Indian stock market. We've got modest exposure there, and so far it's been all right. And how high do you see the Sensex going these next few years? By when? Well, I'm not a forecaster. I'm not an astrologer. (laughs) I don't know. I don't don't have a crystal ball. We were counting on you. No, no, I don't make any more predictions anymore. I've I've been in the business far too long, Renita. Nobody knows the future. Anything can happen. And the best thing is to just place your bets and manage the risk. That's the best you can do. What do you think, Peter? Well, I'm in Puru's camp now. It's very, very hard to put a level on the the index. But I I think, you know, what you should look at is the fundamentals of the underlying economy and and the market and the political situation there and things in India are coming together very nicely. Now often markets detach themselves from that reality of the economy but nevertheless economically wise um, the, the, the Indian economy is looking good. Yeah well well, let me put it this way maybe this is more reasonable you know many of the analysts have said that uh, between the time that Modi got elected to the end of his first five-year term um, we're going to see the Sensex double some say triple is this realistic? I think it's very, very hard to sort of attach the level of an index um, to, you know, the election of a prime minister and even, you know, to try and attach it to even the, the fundamentals of the underlying economy. Markets move for many, many bizarre reasons sometimes. So, you know, to try and predict that it's going to double or triple. Um, I think sometimes what you can say, and, and this is where maybe I disagree with Peru, is that in some markets, such as US equities, they are historically at extreme valuations. So the um, the, the risk of those markets is extremely high at the moment. And there, that's where you need, need to um, sort of be careful. 
Puru, what do you think? Go for it. Well, I think, you know, I've been in this trade now for 17 years, Renita, and I've learned that the markets overshoot on both directions. You know, uh, people, very smart people in the mid-90s were saying, oh, the U.S. can't go up, the U.S. can't go up, and it went up for five more years. You know, the Nasdaq doubled in 18 months. The Shanghai Composite went up 600% uh, between 2005, October, and, and 2000 and late 2007. In two years, it went up 600%. The price of oil went from 140 to 30 in 2008, 2009. So I have learned in this business that if you have very sure forecasts of what the world will look like tomorrow, that's a sure shot way to the poorhouse. The much better way is to actually diversify, keep an open mind and not be totally convinced of your own view because you may be wrong. And I've been wrong in the past and I will be wrong in the future. But the key really is risk management, how you protect the downside. And that's why we have now used for two years very strict trailing stops on every position and it's working well for us. So many wealth managers will tell us then, you know, keep uh, uh, 10% of your portfolio for gold. Um, what do you think? Is gold uh, beginning to lose its shine? It's already lost its shine. It's gone down from $1,923 an ounce to about 1200 or so. So it's already lost its luster. It's in a bear market. Gold tends to do well as a fear trade when there is fear and when there are fears of inflation or a global bust. That's when gold does well. In my view... In this environment, there is no place for gold in a portfolio. Is this a, a safe haven trade in, in a world where volatility is increasing, risk is going up? Gold tends to be a safe haven for, you know, in, in, in that type of scenario. Well, I think this is, again, a myth because if you look at the price action or the history of gold, in the crash, when we had the big crisis between 2008 and nine, the price of gold fell. A lot of people had gold as an insurance policy in their portfolio, thinking that the price of gold would benefit in that scenario. It fell. And when they had the European crisis, the price of gold has been going down ever since. And in the 80s and in the 90s, for 20 years, the price of gold fell from about 850 to 250. So... If you are worried about uh, the world coming to an end, I would take the cash and stuff it under your mattress. I wouldn't hold gold because I think if there is a deflationary collapse, then everything will go down, including gold. All right. Well, thank you uh, so much for joining us this morning, Puru. That is Puru Saxena of Puru Saxena Wealth Management, a regular contributor on Money for Nothing. My pleasure. Thank you. And we'll be back to talk more about uh, the chief executive's policy address and uh, what that means for business here in Hong Kong. Uh, but first, let's take a quick look at the numbers for the morning. The Nikkei is up 98 points to 16,894. Australia's uh, ASX index is down three quarters of a percent to 5,293. And Seoul's Kospi is up one point to 1,915. In currencies, uh, one euro buys you 1.17 US dollars. The US dollar is currently trading at 117 yen. And one pound sterling is worth 11 Hong Kong dollars and 81 cents. In the past, we could only watch on TV. In the past, we did not take part in making the decision. In the past, only 1,200 people voted. In 2017, 5 million people can take part through one person, one vote. 2017, seize the opportunity. The public consultation on the method for selecting the chief executive by universal suffrage is now underway. Please give your views by March 7. Check out 2017.gov.hk. The best things in life are free. And give them to the birds and bees. I want money. That's what I want. 
The time is now 8.22 a.m. and CY Lung's third policy address presented on Wednesday set out a number of initiatives. Among the highlights, he outlined plans for a pilot scheme to privatize some public housing and he also laid out plans for a $300 million Hong Kong fund to support innovative youth development activities. But Peter, you think the address was a disappointment and that he missed some key initiatives. Can you explain? Yes, I, I think there's, there's two big issues facing um, Hong Kong. The first one is the growing income and wealth divide between a majority of um, Hong Kong's population who tend to be low to middle, uh, middle income workers and then a small group of people who are at the very top of the, uh, of the, of the, of the chain. And then secondly, you know, a, a second issue is how to diversify what is really becoming quite an unbalanced economy in Hong Kong, which is heavily dependent upon just two sectors for its economic growth, property and financial services. So although in the, in the speech there was a spattering of projects, there was no real overarching vision that joined all these together that explained how we're going to deal with those um those, those problems. And I thought the speech was more rather political. I mean, there was a, a big attack on the students, but no real uh, big policy initiative, no grand theme there. All right, let's bring in our guests uh, on the topic this morning. We have Christopher Hammerbeck, who is the Executive Director of the British Chamber of Commerce, and Bill Stacey, uh, Chairman of the Lion Rock Institute, both joining us by phone. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning. Uh, Christopher, if we could go to you first, please. Uh, what are your thoughts on the policy address? Do you agree with Peter Lewis here in that it was sort of loosey-goosey on business initiatives? I think it's uh, absolutely correct. I think it's very much a domestically focused policy address that clearly deals with a range of local political and social issues as to the value of that. That's not for us really to comment. And I think the challenge for the administration is going to be its relationship with LegCo to gain approval for many of these policies. Uh, we particularly uh, were looking for a whole range of uh, medium and long-term uh, strategies, and some of those were not actually mentioned at all, very much focused uh, on current issues and political and domestic uh, social issues. So, so, Bill, what would you have liked to have seen in the, um, in, in the statement yesterday that m- was maybe missing from uh, C. Wailung's uh, address? Um, you know, look, I, I, I think these addresses are, are often exaggerated in, in importance and, and there was a pretense of a grand plan behind there, but, but the, the, the truth is that um, the Fed moving interest rates is going to be more important in Hong Kong probably than what Sea Loan puts in the address. Um, you know, that said, I, I think that um, there were missed opportunities. Um, he, he alluded to um, improving regulation and reducing regulation in parts of the property and uh, sector, which is important. Um, you know, there are opportunities to, to reduce taxes in Hong Kong that I think were missed. There's a massive opportunity to look again at the role of uh, Hong Kong's state-owned enterprises effectively and to embark on privatisation. It's odd that Beijing Capital Airport is privately owned, but the Hong Kong airport is not. Um, uh, 5.3% of Hong Kong's GDP is controlled by government-owned enterprises, and the top 350 um, government-owned enterprises in China represent 2.5% of China's GDP. So so I think um, giving the private sector more space was um, the big opportunity that was missed. That said, I think in dealing with adding supply to the market on the property side, there were some very good things. And in effectively rejecting the idea of a universal pension scheme, 
um, uh, I think that's an advance in the debate. Uh, Christopher, do you think that this uh, neglect of business issues is perhaps somewhat intentional because there is a slow move to uniting uh, business policy here with that of the mainland? No, I don't think that's. I don't think that's the case at all. I, actually, curiously, there were some business issues that actually we do welcome. Uh, certainly, the uh, looking at revamping a body to uh, help the uh, logistics industry, we think, is something we've been asking for for some considerable time. I think also the firm commitment to the third runway is also very welcome. And the big issue, the very big issue here, with all these projects that they're going to be building, these thousands and thousands new homes and what have you. And you ain't going to do it with an ageing uh, workforce. And that's a real, real business issue that needs to be tackled. And there are a lot of people, particularly in unions and so forth, who are burying their heads in the sand over this. The average age is already over 50 of the workforce. And it's a big, big deal. And it needs to be tackled. Otherwise, half these things are just not going to be built in the time frame they're looking at. What do you think about the initiative to bring um, the, the children of Hong Kongers who are abroad back to Hong Kong to offer them incentives to do so? Well, we really welcome this. I, actually, we run every year in partnership uh, with some of our uh, friends in London. We run an annual uh, job fair in London. And one of the difficulties there is we get lots of people who are interested in coming back, second generation, third generation, who want to come back to Hong Kong, highly qualified, native English speakers, Buzomar speakers, and yet uh, the restrictions on immigration make it exceptionally difficult. So we really do welcome that as an initiative, but we want to see delivery on this. So, Bill, there was also a very um, political aspect to this uh, policy address as well. He talked a lot about upholding the rule of law and described Hong Kong as slipping into anarchy if, um, you know, if, if the students got their way. Do you think we're close to anarchy in Hong Kong? Um, oh, I, I wish. Um, you know, look, I think uh, that um, uh, you know, I, I prefer to focus on, on, on the economics of, of the address. You know, I think the other things are um, uh, things that perhaps um, you know, he felt he had to say. Um, uh, you know, the, the substance of the address was you know, a long description of the things that the government were doing. Um, and uh, you know, public opinion will, will respond to those things. You know, I, I think far more important, probably, um, is that despite all of the talk about politics, you know, what the address does show is that life goes on, the government's very busy trying to uh, manage people's lives, and, uh, and if governments... Um, did less of trying to manage people's lives um, and allowed people to focus on productivity, then I think then you'd start to get incomes rising um, and uh, some of the political concerns would moderate. All right. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. That is Christopher Hammerbeck, Executive Director of the British Chamber of Commerce, and Bill Stacey, Chairman of the Lion Rock Institute. Here we are at the end of the show. Let's take a quick look at the numbers. The Nikkei is up now 125 points to 16,920. Australia's ASX index is down four-fifths of a percent to 5,289. And Seoul's Kospi up three points to 1,900. Peter, parting thoughts for the day? More volatility to come, and the next trigger for that could be the U.S. inflation data, which comes out uh, Thursday and Friday in uh, in the U.S., and that will give us an indication of whether the U.S. is also um, slipping closer to the, uh, the the zero inflation level that we're seeing in other in other countries, and will give us an indication of when or if the Fed is likely to raise rates this year. All right, thank you so much for joining us. That is Peter Lewis of Peter Lewis Consult uh, Consulting, our regular. 
Thursday co-host and watch out for his very animated uh, takes on what is happening in the financial markets on our Facebook page, which is facebook.com forward slash money for nothing on RTHK Radio 3. This is Renita Malhotra Hora wrapping up for Money for Nothing this week. We won't have a show tomorrow because we will be having a chief executive call in special program from 8 to 9 o'clock. So don't miss that on Radio 3, but we'll be back with you Monday next week. A quick look at the weather forecast for today. It'll be fine and dry, cold in the morning with a maximum temperature of about 18 degrees during the day. Currently, the temperature is 12 degrees Celsius and the relative humidity is 76%. And now it's time for the half-hour news summary with Ben Pelletier. Politicians have given generally poor marks for yesterday's policy address by the chief executive, with even pro-establishment lawmakers reacting negatively. Pan-Democrats were infuriated by his chiding of the Hong Kong University Student Union magazine undergrad. He said the magazine had advocated self-determination for Hong Kong and students needed to be corrected in their views. Democratic Party lawmaker Albert Ho said this went against the principles of free speech. I think he unnecessarily just focused on a publication of the Students' Union of Hong Kong U. In fact, there is a lot of controversial and lively discussion in the past on this subject, and it's open to a lot of interpretation about the question of self-determination. And he shouldn't just lay the blame on the students. There is a lot of reasons leading to the thinking. So he seems to be exerting a lot of political pressure on the younger generation and is counterproductive. But the D 